0: You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church, Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. So as, as we all are aware that we're studying the, uh, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and we have completed chapter 5, Uh, And uh, the heart of chapter 5 is based on Matthew's gospel, Uh, chapter 5, verses 19, concluding with the words, therefore, Uh, therefore, uh, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great. And as you know, uh, this is the key verse to the last sermon that I preached, uh, where we discovered that the teaching ministry uh, of Jesus is extremely important uh, because it involves the reputation of the church. That those who teach the word of God loosely, and loosely we mean they teach, but they set aside the commands and do not practice what they teach, the result will be a bad reputation. They will be called less in the kingdom of heaven. But those who teach and practice what they teach result in a good reputation. They will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the ingredient uh, that sets the great apart from the least is their practice of the word of God. And or their practice of these inward acts of righteousness written throughout the scriptures. So Pastor Peter and uh, 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 Curtis taught us the difference between the teachings and the interpretations of Scripture according to the religious leaders and according to Jesus. And there were six teachings, if you remember. Uh, This is a little bit of a review, right? Murder, adultery, divorce, remarriage, oaths, eye for eye, love for enemies. The difference between the two interpretations are indicated by the repetition of the phrase, you have heard that it was said, followed by... But I tell you, for instance, there's a pattern uh, here in the scripture which classifies the inward motive behind the outward acts. And this kind of sets the stage for the sermon today. Um, let's review here. The outward, mor- the, ang- the outward act of murder is equal to the inward motive of anger. The outward act of murder is equal to the inward motive of anger. Right? You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, murder equals anger. You move on to the next one. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, adultery equals lust. Let's move to the next one. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, divorce, remarriage equals adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, oaths are unnecessary. See the pattern? You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, retaliation is wrong. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, be perfect in love, as Pastor Peter taught us so greatly. So as you can see, Jesus' teaching is quite different to what the Pharisees were teaching. So Jesus clarified, this is what, uh, this is what was said, but this is what I tell you. In other words, this is what you all have been taught, but now I tell you what it really means. That all of these outward acts have inward motives behind them. That the teachings and interpretations of righteousness are dependent upon inward motives and somewhat boil down to one important instrument, your hearts. So in today's, today's sermon, we learn how to, apply the, how to apply our hearts to the word of God. We learn to practice inward acts of righteousness that develop a true, pure-hearted Christian conduct that leads us to a heavenly reward. But most importantly, what we learn through this passage, chapter 6, is we learn to have the right motives behind the practice of an act of righteousness. Also, let me just pray one minute. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach the word of God. Uh, Lord, may you fill this room with your Holy Spirit and fill us with pure motives. Uh, Lord, be with this message with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, today's, uh, today's sermon is composed of two parts, right? You can see up here on the screen is the first part is a warning for practicing outward righteousness with the wrong motive. And the part two is the inward practices of righteousness. And there's three of them. The practice of almsgiving, the practice of prayer, and the practice of fasting. So today's message is composed of a formal introduction in verse 1 that not only introduces... uh, There you go, verse 1 up there. So today's message is composed of a formal introduction in in, in verse 1 that not only introduces verses 1 through 4, which we're studying today. But it actually serves as this thesis statement for an entire unit of Scripture. So this verse 1 is the thesis for all of these uh, verses. And uh, within the 18 verses, there's a specific pattern that is repeated. And Matthew is so clever. He's, he writes patterns throughout Scripture. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty clever to give us a clearer understanding of Jesus' intent behind the warning of practicing outward righteousness. So in addition to this warning, these 18 verses, there are three inward acts of righteousness, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And we see these uh, verses, uh, a repetition and or pattern of the inward acts of righteousness that the Father rewards, and the outward acts of practices uh, practices that the Father does not award. Uh, So let's take a look at the pattern here, okay? First you have the warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Uh, Then you have the practice when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast. Then you have the avoidance of the hypocrisy. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites. You must not be like the hypocrites. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Then the reward for outward practice, repeated three times. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And finally, and and then, then the instruction is on how to actually practice these acts of righteousness, right? When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by the Father who is in secret. So there's a theme there. What's the theme? Secrecy. So, and and finally, you have the reward here. Uh, uh, And your Father who sees sees in secret will reward you, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So this is a particular pattern here that uh, as uh, between all the practices of righteousness, alms, giving, prayer, and fasting, uh, that we see an expansion in the practice of prayer. Jesus spent extra time uh, to teach us how to pray. So if you notice, verses 7 through 15 is sort of doesn't follow that, that, that pattern, right? <clears throat> so uh, part one is uh, a warning for practicing righteousness with the wrong motives. So I want to give you just a quick overview of that pattern because it's, it's very, it's very, uh, very uh, clever. Um, so... Look at verse 1 again. Let's go ahead and read this verse uh, together. Okay, you ready? Let's go. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen. Okay. Wow, there's a lot of material. Did you get all that? There's going to be a test after this, I promise. Okay, so the first, the, the first verse is the introductory theme of Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, as we just discussed. So it has two parts to it. Look, look, at, the, look at the verse, right? There's two parts to the verse. It's a warning and a consequence for, listen, for not listening to the warning regarding religious practice, regarding the religious practice of outward righteousness for other people for the purpose of being seen by them. Uh, the warning begins with the word beware, Uh, which is in the English ESV and originates from the Greek word prosete, uh, which means to be in a continuous state of readiness, to learn of any future danger, need, or error, and to respond appropriately, to pay attention to, to keep on the lookout for, to be uh, alert, to be on one's guard against. Make certain that you do not perform your religious duties in public. Watch yourself and watch your teaching. So this verb, prosete, it's in an imperative. An imperative mood. An imperative is a command. It functions as a command. So Jesus commands saying, beware. Take heed. Be careful. Watch out. That you don't practice righteousness before other people for the purpose of being seen by them. So the imperative command, beware, it's much like an act of volition, right? A volition is more or less an imposition of of one's will upon another and comes from a place of superiority. The one who commands is superior to the one being commanded. So on a side note, sometimes when the commands of God are preached, we feel as though our will is being impeded upon. But this is the nature of the commands of God. It's the imposition of God's will Through the word upon our will that shapes our character and conduct. And these wills, our will and God's will, are in a constant contrast. And so the one who says be careful or beware, Jesus, is speaking from a a position of authority and experience. This person is worthy to speak to us such words because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. But even more so, Jesus' heart, his motivation is that he is truly concerned that the proper motive produces conduct that is worthy of a blessing. Jesus is concerned about our motives when we carry out his teachings and according to his will and not our own. Jesus is so concerned with how his disciples practice righteousness and so this is why he commands them, be careful, be careful. Be careful when you're practicing your acts of righteousness before others. For if the imperative command is, is violated, if this command is violated in any way, right, when you practice righteousness before people, there's a result that happens. There's a consequential result that happens to that. What is the result? No reward. There will be no reward. So beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Right. So this is a sort of an if-then statement, right? If you do your righteousness before other people to be seen by them, then you will have no reward. But through this warning, Jesus is indirectly establishing a standard uh, of what the true practice of righteousness sort of looks like. If Jesus warns us that true righteousness is not practicing acts of righteousness before other people for the purpose of being seen by them, well, then what is righteousness? What is true righteousness? We use the term righteousness, right? But we don't use that term in in normal conversation. Jesus is telling us what not to do, but he doesn't really tell us what to do. And so God's standard of righteousness is displayed all throughout the Bible, The standard of righteousness is not based on the outward appearance, but the Lord is mostly concerned with our hearts. One good example is the story of King David when he was elected by God as the king of Israel. There were many presented to God as eligible candidates for king, but the Lord rejected all of them because the Lord's standards were not based on appearance but on the motivation of the heart. For it is written in 1 Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord uh, said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord God God sees differently than what we see. The Lord doesn't look at the action. He's looking at the motivation of our heart behind the action. Jesus' point here is regarding the purpose behind an act of righteousness. The purpose of why we practice religious practice. We are in a religious practice. What's the purpose? Is is the act done with the right motive? Is the act done to be seen by God? Or is it done before men? since the reward for practice of righteousness is dependent upon the father for what this father sees and whether or not the practice of righteousness was done with the proper motive and purpose the purpose of doing any form of righteousness is only right when it is done to be seen by god and your father who sees in secret will reward you notice that the first verse is not just limited to do not practice your righteousness before other people, period, the end. Jesus is not saying that, that practicing any type of righteousness before man is inherently wrong. Uh, if this were the case, corporate prayer would be wrong. This worship service would be wrong, right? Preaching would be wrong, since it's not done in private. So it doesn't really matter if the act is a public or a private act, the only thing that matters is the act done before people is done with the purpose of being seen by God. With the right heart, the right motivation, the right intentions, and most importantly, the right purpose. Be careful when practicing acts of righteousness to be before other people to be seen by them. For there will be no reward in heaven. Part two is three the three inward practices of righteousness. First, the practice of almsgiving. I'm only going to cover the practice of almsgiving or giving, right? Uh, Curtis is going to do a prayer and fasting uh, in the coming weeks. But the practice of almsgiving, that word almsgiving, it was a regular uh, sort of practice in uh, a Jewish culture. It was part of uh, a Jewish temple and synagogue worship And almsgiving is a religious practice that you see in all kinds of circles of religion, right? You see almsgiving in Buddhism, Muslims, Catholics. All of these practices, all of them practice giving alms. And almsgiving in the Christian circle is much like the modern-day practice of offering, which is a part of the worship you see in some churches today. And while offering and almsgiving are two separate practices... Right? They're similar in practice because they both involve giving. So let us not, let us not uh, confuse the two. An offering is an act of sacrifice. It's, a, it's sacrificial giving. When we make an offering, we're, we're making a sacrifice to God. In almsgiving, on the other hand, is, is an act of mercy. It's an act of compassion. It's merciful giving. It's charitable giving. So, this is the type of giving, almsgiving, is the type of giving that comes from a compassionate heart, right? To care for the sick, to give food to the hungry, uh, to drink to the thirsty, shelter for the poor. And almsgiving was a well-known burden uh, among the Jewish culture. So, in so much as they had the responsibility to take care of the poor, And needy among them uh, to be obedient to the law of God. Uh, This burden for the poor originates uh, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. Let's take a look at these verses. Where does the burden come from? Jesus says to them, right? um, When you give to the needy. Uh, This is an actual practice uh, in church or in synagogue worship. So he says here on the screen, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all the work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So, God was commanding the Israelites uh, to give to the needy way back in Deuteronomy uh, and to give to the needy and the poor in their land. This is where the burden comes from the burden of, of giving to the poor. The Word of God says that poverty will never cease in the land. Isn't this sort of true today? You know, poverty is a huge crisis. In California, we see an epidemic of homelessness, it's specifically in Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles is, is sort of filled with homelessness. Um, <clears throat> you cannot go into down, L.A. downtown without seeing tents, trash, rats, and unfortunately, the smell of urine, right? It's terrible. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complete, utter disaster. These people have nowhere to go. Homeowners complain to the police about homeless camps in their community, but they do nothing to help them get off their feet. Our government leaders have turned the blind eye on, to the crisis, thinking that this crisis will resolve itself. Here's a funny news story. Uh, in the city of New York, Mayor Bill de Blasio's administration has used a program called the Special One-Time Assistance Program to relocate nearly 10,000 homeless peoples to over 300 cities. wow, what a righteous deed. The New York government will pay you a year's rent for you to live in any city in the U.S. as long as it's not in New York City. Here's a year of rent. Go live in California, right? (laughs) But the homeless crisis is not the duty of the American government even though they love to take the credit for such those acts, right? Poverty will never cease as long as the earth remains, not just in California, not just in New York, but all throughout the world. Believe it or not, God has placed that burden upon the church to care for the poor. The word of the Lord says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, shall open wide her hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. <clears throat> but don't confuse it. Not only, is, not only uh, in, are we to give to the poor uh, in material giving, but in food, shelter, and care. And interestingly enough, the, the practice of almsgiving is not specifically limited to just a material gift, money, monetary value. Right. Uh, if that's the first time you heard of the word alms giving, this word can be defined as any favor given to assist the needy, and it is prompted by compassion. And by needy, we're referring to uh, those who are suffering in poverty, uh, those who have health concerns, mental health concerns, hungry, sick, tired, imprisoned, hurt, battered, beaten, etc., etc. All of these. Define all of us. In other words, we give our heart of compassion to all those who are suffering. Not just the poor. We are sympathetic towards all people. We have empathy, pity, and concern for the human sufferings. And the misfortunes of others. This is the heart of God. This is the heart that God wants us to have when we give to, our need- to the needy. He wants us to open our hands, to reach out to the poor with a heart of compassion. Not a dollar bill. Not a blanket. But a blanket could be in the form of compassion. Well, what about these Pharisees? Where were their hearts? Look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Seconds, the avoidance of hypocrisy and the reward of outward practice. So the word hypocrite, right? This word originates from the acting profession. It actually comes from the Greek drama, where a a hypocrite was usually an actor Who wore a mask and whereby he was pretending to be something that he actually was not. The Pharisees were a good example of hypocrites. They they performed all of these outward practices. Giving to the poor. Praying in public. Fasting. But their hearts were full of greed and wickedness. Their motives for doing it were corrupted. It was all just a really big show. The hypocrite acts as though they care about the poor, but they don't care about the poor. They want you to think they care about the poor so they praise the, so that you praise their act of giving. Oh, you're, you're such a good person. You gave to the poor. You prayed. You fasted. Wow. But normally a hypocrite is, a, is an expert deceiver. Right? Not only is he just deceiving others, but he's deceiving himself without even really knowing it. And Jesus says, when you give to the needy, don't announce it. Give in private. Right? So there, there are two major places that alms were given Right in this time period. They were given in the streets, and then they were given in the synagogues. And so it's pretty difficult to keep a public act... Private, right? On the outside, the outward practice, right, of the gift of alms given on the streets and on the synagogues looks righteous to onlookers, right? Church looks righteous to to onlookers. But what's going on in the pastor's heart? The reality is uh, that the gift is privately hidden, perhaps in an envelope, or in a container, we can't tell what is behind the inward motive of an act of giving. So the reality is the purpose of the hypocrite's presence at the synagogue and in the street is not really give, is not really to give to the needy privately, but it's to take praise from them. It's to steal from them. So this action is not giving at all, it's actually taking. They are ripping off the poor instead of giving to the poor and that person doesn't care about the receiver of the gift since they're only giving to be seen by others for their own benefit which is to show off their generosity in the streets and in the synagogues in order to receive the praise for their pious acts congratulations Jesus says truly I say to you they have received their reward their reward is empty praise from men but a true heart of compassion a true heart of mercy for the poor and the needy it, it can't be masked true compassion comes from an understanding the sufferings and the misfortunes of another person if you've ever suffered with poverty you know what it's like not to be able to put food on the table if you were an immigrant in this land and you had to come over, you know the struggle was hard. If you've ever, if you've ever suffered uh, from cancer or know of a loved one who has suffered from cancer or is afflicted by it, you know how it feels. That there's nothing you can do to heal them. But your only hope is to leave it in the hands of God. If you've ever suffered from depression you know what it feels like to have no hope. If you've ever suffered from addiction, you know how hard it is to break the addiction. If you've ever had someone in your life suffering from mental illness, you know that struggle is real. And at times you feel helpless because they don't make any sense and they don't listen to you. If you've ever gone through a divorce, a broken family, a broken relationship, A church split you know the pain that ails your heart from the separation from those people and so we hope and pray that if you're suffering today that the Lord God would comfort you this morning that we might receive from the comforter and the father of all compassion comfort for the troubles of life if you are a Christian I'm sure you have overcome some type of suffering God has comforted you. And now it's and, and now your suffering has become the tool to comfort others because you understand those people. God God understands us. God understands you. God understands what you're going through. God is the father of compassion. Praise be to the God of Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we have received ourselves from God. So we can comfort other people only because we received the comfort from God. So if we receive comfort from God, we have the tool of compassion. We have the tool of compassion to comfort others. Friends, giving to the needy is not just limited to giving to some homeless guy on the street. It's more to this. It's having a heart of compassion like the Father for anyone who is in need. Whether physically or spiritually. We know when someone's being genuine. You know when someone really cares about you. You know when someone's being really sincere because they approach you with the right heart, with the heart of compassion. And Jesus says, Hey, you, you have a burden for the poor? You have a burden for the poor in spirit? Open wide your hearts. And open wide your hand to your brothers and sisters around you in private. Do you see any of your brothers and sisters in need? Go to them in private. See what you can give them. Give to them freely and God will reward you. So you either have a genuine heart and a genuine burden for the poor. Or you're just genuinely trying to take advantage of them. By trying to earn the praise from men through your act of giving to the poor. Jesus calls these people hypocrites. Because as they give, they toot their own horn. So to speak. Their purpose is to draw praise from men. They are giving with the wrong motives. Don't be this person. Don't give to the church, or anybody with the motive to receive praise from others. For if you do, that will be your only reward. Oh, that we as a church would not turn a blind eye to those who are in spiritual and physical need. And or woe to us if we use their shortcomings to lift ourselves up with the praise of men. We hope and pray that we are a people who do not practice hypocrisy. So then, we've learned all the wrong, bad things of what we shouldn't do, right? What should we do? How then shall we give with the right motives? Where does the right motive come from? Look at verses 3 and 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Lastly, how to practice giving and the rewards for inward practice. So, Jesus taught us through the practice of the hypocrites how to give with the wrong motives, and which is to give to be seen by others and for the praise of men. Now Jesus shows us the correct form of giving and how we can give with the right motives. So verses 3 and 4 have one important point that helps us understand how to have the right motives in giving to the poor. We are to give in total secrecy. It says, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The illustration in verse 3 of the left hand, not knowing what the right hand is doing, highlights the point of keeping your giving a secret. If your right hand is giving... Your left hand ought not know what your right hand is doing. In other words, we are keeping a secret from our left hand. Right? In so much as we are to disregard it entirely when we give to the poor. We are to disregard ourselves when we give. We're not to take credit or praise in the presence of men for our giving. We are to not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. We also see a repetition of the word, uh, the word secret in verse 4, right? You see the word secret repeated twice. Indicating that all of our giving must be done in an, an absolute secrecy, as we mentioned. And the reason for this is that the Father sees in secret. As we, as we mentioned earlier, God does not look at your action but rather the motive behind your action. God looks at your heart, and he rewards accordingly. And unfortunately, we humans are are short-sighted, and we're not able to see the spiritual motives of people's hearts. We are able to discern, but we're not able to see the spiritual motives inside the hearts of people. We are only able to see them uh, that's, that's the human limitation. The human limitation is we're not able to see motivations behind people's actions. But God can see these. And <clears throat> we are only able to see motivations through actions, and even still we don't see them. But God is able to see everything, so we cannot hide from God, right? The Father's sight is like twenty twenty vision. Uh, The Father sees everything. He sees all of our secrets. He knows all of our thoughts. He can see directly into our hearts what we're thinking right now. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So if nothing, is in, if nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight, we can't hide our motives from God. We can't hide our sins from God. God sees everything. And in the end, we must give an account for our actions to God when, when this life is over. When this life is over, we will all be judged according to what we've done here on this earth. The Apostle Paul knew this so well. Uh, And he writes in the book of of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 and 5. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness... And will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. This verse is is sort of comforting. Right? Let us judge nothing. But wait for the appointed time. When Jesus will expose all the motives of our heart. all the motives of those other people's heart who hurt us, right? We want to know, want to know what their motives were, right? But <clears throat> what then will be our reward for practicing an act of righteousness in the here and now? What do we get now for doing these things, right? Well, now is not the time we receive our rewards for our, for our righteous acts. These will all be accounted for when the Lord comes at the appointed time. Our reward is in heaven, and we receive praise from God and not praise from men. And this is far better than the praise of men. The Father will see our good works, and he will reward us according to our works. So we need not worry about the specific reward now. Uh, We just need to know that we will receive a heavenly reward as we practice inward acts of righteousness that develop pure Heart hearted Christian conduct. So be careful in your religious practice. Be careful with how you perform your acts of righteousness. We need to be careful that we have the right motive, the right heart when we approach God in any public forum to practice religion or to practice an act of righteousness. Whether it is giving, whether it is praying, whether it is fasting, whether it is teaching, whether it is singing, whether it is worshiping, whether it is all of these things. We need to be careful that we are doing them with the right heart. Because we are all, all of us are vulnerable to become hypocrites. We are all vulnerable to hypocrisy. We are all sinful. All have sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one in this room that is good, not one. Only Jesus who's here with us. But these, are, these acts of righteousness are spiritual disciplines that as they are practiced, as we practice prayer, as we practice giving, as we practice fasting, as we practice singing, as we practice teaching, Whatever you do in church, whatever you practice serving, your hospitality, all these things that you're doing for here and there, why do you do them? What for? When we do things, spiritual disciplines like prayer, reading the word of God, right, these things develop a pure heart. A pure heart can be born out of doing those things, but we need to be careful when we actually carry them out that the conduct uh, that is produced through these disciplines uh, produce a pure heart. Uh, That will be rewarded, and that will be blessed by God. The Father sees in secret our hearts and blesses us accordingly. So I leave you with this. What is the right motivation behind the action of practicing an act of righteousness. The right motive behind the practice of righteousness, it is to practice our acts before God in total secrecy with the right heart and for the right purpose. This is the right motive behind the practice of an act of righteousness. Righteousness. Let's pray.